Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the team at Project Health Monitoring. PHM provides digital solution for industry, sport, and education, allowing you to focus on well-being, performance, and academic engagement in real time. But more on that a little later in the episode. And welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Welcome back everyone for another week. I have some really exciting news to share with you all. After lots of listeners have asked if they can work with me on their DISC personality profile, I've decided to run a workshop for you all. DISC is the world number one behavioral assessment tool taken by millions of people every year. It's a simple yet powerful framework used to articulate common ways human beings respond, relate, and behave to each other. We will dive deep into what drives and motivates human behavior, and you walk away with a step-by-step guide to communication. It feels like it's been years since we've been able to do these face-to-face workshops, so I'm really pumped about this one. I would love to personally invite each and every one of you to come over and join us for it. Stay tuned as I will have more information for you next week on the pod. And of course, I will pop it in our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us. So if you have not yet joined our Facebook group, I encourage you to press pause now and jump on and do that first. Today, I want to introduce you to Rachel Laurie. She comes on today to talk about the unspoken topic of challenging pregnancies, births, and we also talk about miscarriage. Rachel and her husband have had a hard couple of years when they had their two beautiful little babies, and it is so nice to hear her talk at the end of the podcast about how good things are now for them five years on. Rachel tells us about when both her babies tried to come early, what happens when she hemorrhaged after her second birth, and the devastating result of a hysterectomy so young. We had to record this episode twice as the audio didn't work the first time. And when we went to record it today, everything tech that could go wrong did go wrong. So Rachel, I want to do a massive shout out to you and your perseverance. It would have been so much easier just to stop the recording and not do it at all. However, as you say throughout this episode, you know exactly why you're doing the recording. If you can help one person out there, then it is worth all the tech troubles in the world. I want to honour the space for anyone that has experienced a miscarriage or lost a child. If this episode is not the right one for you today, I encourage you to skip it and we will see you next week. And if you want to talk to someone, you can call Lifeline on 131114. Let me introduce you to Rachel. Welcome, Rachel, to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Alice, for having me. It's uh, an absolute pleasure again to be here. I'm very excited. (laughs) And when you say again, we actually had recorded this episode a few weeks ago and went to sort out the audio and we'd lost the audio. So I really appreciate you coming on again. A lot's happened since then. You've had a big week. It has been a very big week. Uh, It's been a bit crazy. We've got a baby lamb. My daughter had COVID and it's been a bit mental, but it's been fun. I love that you didn't even mention the spider bite there. Tell us about the potential spider bite. So just had a little spider bite. I was in the garden. I love gardening and just had a little little spider bite me on the leg. So I was a bit sick for a few days, but I'm feeling much better now, thankfully. And they said that it could possibly be a funnel web potentially? Well, he said he doesn't know. He said it's hard to tell, but he said to be as unwell as I was yesterday, that it had to most likely have been a spider. And he kind of undenied about a a red back or a funnel web, um, but he said it's, yeah, hard to tell. I was talking to some Americans the other day and they were saying how dangerous our animals here are in Australia and I was like, not really. But then when you think about it, we really do. And they said our animals just 
we live with them and they're just around in our house and like snakes come in the home and spiders come in and, you know, I don't really think about that. Like I always think about Africa as having really dangerous animals but they're big and you can see them a lot of the time whereas in Australia they're often tiny and they, you know, can be in your jumper or your shell. It's making me, ooh, just thinking mm. about it. <laughs> it's a bit gross just to think about them. You know, we think about snakes and spiders being in our house and we go, oh, they best be dead if they're in our house but other people would just kind of live with them and I'm not sure I could, I'm not sure I could hack that. That's a bit terrifying really. Yeah. And Rach, I love to start every podcast with asking what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal? So I actually asked my husband about this. So I said, I was thinking about it for a couple of days and I went to him and I said, what animal best describes me? And he said, I don't know. And I said, what do you mean you don't know? Give me an example of something that might describe me. And he said, do one of those online quizzes. So he sent me a link to an online quiz and I got a butterfly. And yeah, I can agree with a butterfly because I like to be in the garden. I like, you know, I think I'm a bit bright. I'm probably a bit social like butterflies probably are. But then personally, I felt that I was probably more of a meerkat because they're quite busy animals and they're very protective of their tribe and the people around them. I love that you say a butterfly and a meerkat because those two animals couldn't be worlds apart if they tried. Like there's, I, I can't even think of a common characteristic amongst them. No, absolutely nothing. But there that's what I got so you know a little bit a little bit different a little bit alternate I'm gonna have two perfect perfect now Rach we have got you on today to chat about your pre-pregnancies and labors and post-pregnancies because it's one of the things that many people don't talk about like I know for me before I had my three children I hadn't had a single conversation with anyone about what could go wrong in pregnancy or about a labor and then once you kind of open your world up to it the women talk about it in that moment if they're kind of in that chapter, but after that it kind of goes silent again for a long time. Is that your experience? Uh, absolutely. So I found that not many people talk about their labours or their births or their pregnancies. So it's a very much, I feel, a taboo topic and unless you have a perfect pregnancy, which plenty of people do and that's great, then the struggles aren't really discussed. And when you are going through a pregnancy that is quite difficult, you feel very isolated I suppose is probably the right word like I know in one of, for one of our births in particular I felt extremely isolated and like I didn't really know what was happening or why it was happening and I didn't know anyone else who'd experienced the same thing. Mm. And do you want to take us back to the beginning of your story? Yeah so we have two very gorgeous children Gracie who's six and William who's just turned five actually in the last week as well for Grace's birth, we were living in a little town called Bendemi, which is halfway between kind of Armadale and Temur. She tried to come at 24 weeks gestation. So I had to, we chose to go and see an obstetrician in Armadale because my mum and dad and um, a lot of my family network is in Armadale. So we just decided that that's where we would give birth because then they could come and visit and they could come and see us. And he was an excellent obstetrician. So at 24 weeks, I was having a bit of a complication. I had a few. What I didn't really know was a contraction because obviously being my first baby, I didn't know what to expect. And I just went, I just, I feel a bit sick. I feel a bit yuck. I feel these tummy cramps and they're not letting up. And so I went and saw him and he said, yeah, you're actually in preterm labor. And now they can do a swab vaginally and let you know essentially the risk of you having your baby early. And my results came back extremely high. So I was then flown out to John Hunter Hospital and I spent two weeks in John Hunter Hospital. And progressively for the rest of my pregnancy with Gracie, the same thing kind of kept happening. So I'd spend two weeks in Newcastle. I was then allowed to come home once things had all settled down. I The same thing happened at about 30 weeks again. So I was then sent back. I actually got flown out to Sydney that time because that was where a bed was available. And I was then allowed to come home again. And then the same thing happened and I was flown out again to Newcastle. However, at the end of that, Gracie actually ended up coming on her due date. So I spent 16 weeks on bed rest with her and on my due date decided I'd vacuum the house and went into labour. Yeah, wow. And so when you talk about bed rest, Rachel, are you able to explain what that looked like for you? No strenuous exercise at all. So no exercising, you don't keep your movement incredibly limited. So resting, laying in bed, literally in bed, watching movies, laying on the couch, that kind of stuff, which... I like to be busy. I'm an incredibly active person. I like to be busy. And if I'm not busy, then I really struggle with that with my mental health. So being stuck on bed rest for me was incredibly hard. 
and I struggled a lot through that. It was a really difficult period for me. But at the end of it, we got a reward of of having a baby, which was really exciting. Yeah, and I think it's often that's one of the things that I don't hear a lot of people talking about is so for you it was it was about 14 weeks worth of bed rest which is 3 months. So, you know, having that constant worry about is my baby okay? Is everything going to be okay? Not being able to like you said use your coping skills which is usually movement and just kind of waiting it out like waiting out every day, waiting out every week and every time you feel a twinge, I can imagine you know, you automatically freeze and alarm bells come on and it's like, is this is something wrong here? Yeah, it's anxiety inducing, to be honest. Like there's no other word to use besides that. Once you're told once and then twice that, you know, you're going into labor, you know, it becomes that trip to ben- from Benami to Armadale, which is about an hour, it becomes a really long car trip of, you know, is today the day that I meet my baby? Is my baby okay? What's going on? And in the end, we had that many scans that by the time she was actually born, I kind of thought to myself, oh yeah, like I've seen her, like I know that that's what she looks like and she's he- and she was healthy and she was perfect. You know, there was no post-birth with her. We had no complications. My post-birth recovery with her was incredible. Mm. And Rach, this was the beginning of a very bumpy road for you, the first pre-pregnancy. What happened next? So Gracie was about six weeks old and we decided that we would move from Bendemi where we were on a family farm out to Canada as we owned a, another family farm out here. And we decided to, yeah, move out here. During the moving process, I had a six-week-old baby and I actually found out that I was pregnant again. I was breastfeeding. I was on the pill and I decided as a – I didn't want to be on the pill anymore and I wanted a more long-term, more effective contraceptive. So I decided that I would try the Implanon rod However, when the implant rod was actually inserted, I was pregnant and I didn't know. I had a gut feeling that something wasn't quite right once I had the implant put in. I felt a bit nauseous and I just felt really sick and really off and I thought I was just having a side effect of the implant rod. I went and saw a GP and he said, you know, is there any chance you're pregnant? And I said, no, I'm taking the pill, I'm breastfeeding and I've now got the rod in my arm. And he said, well, you know, you need to go and pee on a stick. And he essentially said, you're pregnant, which is really unusual. Oh, my God. Really, really unusual for it to happen. So Grace was Grace was a baby. Um, and I just found out that, yeah, we're about to have two babies under one, which was a bit mental, really. Yeah. I've never heard of anyone falling pregnant when being on the pill breastfeeding and having the implement. Like I occasionally heard of someone that was breastfeeding that may not have been taking contraception because even any one of those things they usually say is good enough contraception to not have another baby. Yeah. So we actually probably worked out because of our dating scan that we had done once we found out that we were pregnant that I would have been pregnant prior to the Implanon being inserted. So the pill obviously wasn't effective and neither was the breastfeeding. And when you have an Implanon rod inserted, they're actually meant to do a pregnancy test before they do it and they didn't do it. So that was a bit of a a lot to, to deal with, I think, at the time. And yeah, so we found out we were pregnant and we wrapped our heads around having two under one and how we were going to make it work. And I had to start progesterone suppositories. I had to get the rod taken out of my arm because of the chemical that is in it. They were concerned about the risk of me having a miscarriage at the time. So then I had to start progesterone suppositories every day vaginally. So I do two suppositories every day to stop my risk of having a miscarriage. And then at 12 weeks, we like they were doing scans every week kind of thing just to make sure that things were progressing really nicely and that there was a heartbeat and the baby was growing how it should be and and everything was looking really fantastic and we told kind of our immediate circle the week before that we were having a baby and it was going to be two under one and it was going to be like my mum and dad and my husband's mum and dad and it was going to be a lot and then we went to the 12-week scan and I kind of said to Gracie who was four months old at the time I think you know well, she might have been a bit older, maybe six months old at the time. You know, you're about to be a sister and she probably didn't understand. She'd have no idea now that you're going to be a big sister and all that kind of stuff. And, and yeah, I looked at the screen when he was doing his ultrasound and it just, like I said last time, I think it just looked like a, a fuzzy screen. Like when you look at the old school TVs when they lose their reception and the screen would just go that fuzziness and that's all I could see. And he just kind of looked at me and he just said, I'm really sorry, but 
I believe that you're having a miscarriage. Have you had any gut feeling? Have you had any, have you been sick in the last few days? And I said, actually, I thought that I might've caught a gastro bug from my daughter a couple of nights ago. I said, I had some really intense tummy cramps and I, I was vomiting and I just felt really nauseous. And I kind of half put it down to morning sickness and half put it down to having a gastro type bug from my daughter. Not that I was going through a miscarriage. So yeah, he said, yeah, it's a miscarriage. You need to go home and and things should progress by themselves, unfortunately, after two days and a lot of wine over those two days and kind of processing, going from having to process two babies under one and then processing, okay, we're going to make it work. Okay, let's go and do our 12 weeks again. And now there's a miscarriage trying to process all of that. So it was a lot. I had a lot of soft cheese and drank a bit of wine in those, you know, a couple of bottles of wine in two days doesn't hurt. And then it still hadn't happened. So I then went for a DNC, which is essentially, if there's listeners who don't know what a DNC is, it's like a dilation and curette. So they dilate you and they take out, yeah, what would be the baby, I suppose, and your placenta and that kind of stuff. And they just do a really good clean out so that any future pregnancies are able to be viable and able to be healthy and that kind of stuff. Um, Sorry, I'm going to cry. I didn't think I'd get emotional again. I'm just listening and I just... Rach, I just want to say how sorry I am for your experience, you know, like you you say it really quickly, but as a mum myself, just thinking about that process of we're going to have another baby and this is our future now and then being told that that baby isn't going to make it, like I just, yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's it's a lot and, you know, I probably – don't think about it because like I I quite often talk about snippets of our pregnancies and like and I don't ever just sit down like on a podcast and say this is all of it this is it in a lump sum here it is in a box I don't talk about it like that I kind of go oh yeah we had a hem like a hemorrhage which we'll talk about later on with Will or we had some preterm issues with both the kids or I've had a hysterectomy I don't talk about it as a lump sum Mm. So yeah, it's a lot. And Rach, it's why when I talk to other mums, I'd love to get your opinion on this. And, you know, everyone, it's different for every person, but they always say, you know, don't say anything into your 12 weeks because something could happen and then, you know, it could be awkward or whatever the reasons are. But I, I often say to people, you need your team there when something goes wrong. And if you haven't told anyone about the pregnancy, if you've kept it really silent and then something goes wrong you have a miscarriage, they have to do something with the pregnancy, you need those people to lean on. You need that support wrapped around you and it's a very lonely place going through what you went through. And if, you know, I just don't know, do you have an opinion on that, on telling people or having that support around if something goes wrong? Absolutely. I mean, it's one in four, you know, there's one in four women and I've got three sisters. So we're one in four people and I've got no doubt that, you know, some of them or all of them, I'm not going to speak on their behalf, have had a miscarriage. It's one in four women go through a miscarriage and how often do we actually talk about it or do we just keep it Mm. to ourselves and suffer in silence? And being open and communicating about that with women around you means that people probably feel more comfortable to talk about it and talk about their experience and talk about how traumatic it was and feel comfortable and have that support when they feel lonely and isolated because it's an isolating thing to go through. It's a really hard thing to go through. And everyone experiences it differently, including mum and dad, you know, like one person in the relationship might not see it as grief and losing a baby. They might just be like quite practical about it and like, oh, this has happened and let's move on. The other one might completely see it as this was our baby and they need to go through the whole grief process and there's no way of knowing until you're in it yeah so my husband is a farmer so I look at him probably as a rough tough gruff really you know nothing kind of phases him kind of guy but I have got no doubt that internally when it happened he struggled just as much I've got no doubt about that I probably showed my struggle more externally than he did, but I've got no doubt that it was it was hard for him as well at the time. And we were also going through the drought at the time as well. So it was, you know, it was a lot mentally, whether it was the drought and then having a miscarriage and then trying to process two kids under one and financially how that would work. And, you know, it was a lot to be dealing with. So yeah, we had a, a miscarriage and then 
about a week later, I kind of thought nothing of it after having the DNC. The doctor kind of said, yeah, everything looked great. We're going to send it all away for some testing. We do that with every DNC that we do just to ensure that there was nothing that we should be aware of. And after a couple of days, I thought I've not heard from him. So that's, he said, if you hear from me, you know, come and see me. If you don't, it's great news. And after a few days, I thought I haven't heard from him. That's awesome. That's great news. We can potentially start trying for another baby if we so choose to or not, because it was quite, you know, two under one, we decided it was probably going to be a lot anyway. But then within a week, I had a phone call. I received a call from him and he basically said, I need to see you and I need to see you as soon as possible. And I kind of thought, okay, cool. What time tomorrow suits you? And he said, no, no, come and see me this afternoon. And I went, okay. And I said, I'll see you at, you know, like four o'clock or five o'clock this afternoon. He said, no, no, can you be in here in half an hour? And I went, yep, sure. That's fine. So I bundled Gracie up and I, I rang my husband and said, I need to go to town. The doctor wants to see me. I'm not sure what about. And I got in there and he told me that I'd had a molar pregnancy. So I'd never heard of a molar pregnancy. He had never heard of a molar pregnancy either. No. So between the two of us, he was ringing doctors in Sydney and I was doing a lot of Googling and, you know, finding Facebook support groups and that kind of stuff just to try and wrap my head around what it was. So within the research, I found out that there's two different types of molar pregnancy. So there's a complete molar pregnancy and a partial molar pregnancy. And the molar pregnancy that I had was a partial molar pregnancy. So a partial molar pregnancy or incomplete molar pregnancy is when the mother's chromosomes are present, but the father supplies two sets of chromosomes. The embryo then has 69 chromosomes instead of 46. This most often occurs when two sperm fertilize an egg, resulting in an extra copy of the father's genes. So it's really rare for that to happen. Mm. Funny, you know, in hindsight that we can say that he had really great swimmers and that's why <laughs> I was going to have two babies under one. So yeah, really rare that it happens. And that then led to me having to have weekly blood draws for six months after finding out that I was having a molar pregnancy because my body was still actually producing the pregnancy hormones, the HCG. So my body was still telling me, you're having a baby, even though I wasn't, which was pretty awful because every time I take my form into the ladies at, at Pathology, they'd congratulate me on having a baby because they could see that my levels are up where they should be. So they'd say, congratulations, it's all exciting. How far along are you? And ask all these questions and I had to explain to them. And eventually we got on on terms where because I was in there every week that they'd stop asking because they would know why I was there. But it was it was hard, really, really difficult. Oh, Rach, it's awful. Like even, yeah, I just, I can't imagine what you're going through at this point in time, you know, and we didn't even discuss getting a phone call like that from a doctor where they say you need to be in right now and you're on a farm. Like just that's your worst nightmare, isn't it? Just knowing that something's wrong and something's, and then it's like it's just not ending for you, right? Yeah, it was pretty full on. Like it was mentally, I suppose, on reflection, you go, holy shit, that was a lot. But in the time, you just go, well, they're a doctor. They know what's best. I'll go and see them. Let's make it happen because that's just what you do. You know, you you take you take their opinion on exactly what it is because they're the professional in the situation. And, yes, I know my body and I know that something didn't feel right, you know, with Grace and with the miscarriage and stuff like that. But, yeah, I probably didn't realise quite how how significant it was at the time. Yeah. And what kind of emotions were there for you at this point in time? At the time, it was a shit ton of why me? Why us? Why am I going through this? Why am I being told that we're going to have two babies under one, which was a shock? Why are we going through the drought? Why am I now having a miscarriage? Why am I having to have a DNC? And now why this? Because it was a fucking lot. Yeah. Like, my motto for quite a long time, and that's because of my mental health at the time, was what the fuck? Because I just got to a point where I went, how much worse can it get? And you had a baby under one. Like we haven't even brought Gracie into this conversation. You were also a new mum. Yeah. So I was trying to be a new mum and I, in hindsight, I've got no doubt in my mind at all that I had a fair amount of postpartum depression. 
and probably Mm -hmm. didn't seek the support or the help that I needed at the time to cope and deal with that. Rach, I don't know how you separate it. Like when you say looking back, you might have had postnatal depression. How do you separate the grief of a miscarriage, the having to have weekly draws and it being in your face that whole time, having a newborn baby, having had just been on bed rest for 14 weeks coming into the labor? Like it's really hard to pull it apart and say, this is why I feel like this. I think anyone in that circumstance would be feeling pretty shit and pretty on running on empty. You know, you run on empty at the best of times as a new mum, but with everything you're saying, all I can imagine is there just being nothing left in the bucket to pull from, like nothing. You know, you would have been exhausted. You would have been emotional. You would have been, you know, just trying to do each single day and just trying to take the steps. Yeah, so... I suppose it's kind of a fight or flight moment. You know, you can either choose to Mm. dwell in the fact of why me and why us and all the other stuff, or you can choose to just get up and, you know, and not suck it up because that's not, you know, that's not the motto either. You can't just get over something like that. It's a lot to deal with. Like there's no doubt about that. There's no two ways about that. It's a lot to process. It's a lot to deal with. And yeah, eventually you just, you don't forget about it, but eventually you just realize that that's, makes you who you are today. Mm. And did you seek any help during this time? Uh, Not for a long time, I'm not going to lie. So I probably lent into some pretty good friends that I have. And while they were great, they're no therapist. You probably can't just lean on lean on them and rely on them. And, And I had to go and seek some professional help at the time to support my mental health. And, you know, I suppose in my head I went, there's a big stigma around that because growing up there was a huge stigma around mental health and and people going and seeing therapists and being on medication and that kind of stuff and still to this day I take medication and I'm okay with that now but at the time it was a really big really big process for me to go okay I need to go and seek out help and you know I've, I've heard of a lot of people going I don't particularly relate to therapists or you've got to kind of shop around. I think you said last time you've got to shop around and find a good therapist. But I think I was really fortunate in the fact that I found a really great one straight away. So we had a few sessions and by the time we'd done two or three sessions, it was just like sitting down with a girlfriend and having a cup of coffee. But within that, I was able to gain some really incredible tools to support me and to support my family and, you know, tools to slow down, to breathe more, to enjoy the simple moments. Does it matter if the washing doesn't get folded today? No. Does it matter if, you know, really all that matters is that the kids are happy, they've got a roof over their head, they've got food on their table and that you laugh. That's the crux of it. And do you need to repeat that to yourself on a daily basis, what you just said then? Look, to be honest with you, Alz, I did that therapy and then what we're about to speak about probably happened and the man- that mantra for me is probably only more recently come back up into my head about slowing down and appreciating the small things because like life is way too slow, like way too slow. Wow. No, life is way too short. Yeah. You just need to appreciate the small things and the laughter and and the good times with the kids and, you know, appreciate your family for who they are and what they are. Mm. This is a shout out to all the teachers, parents and principals that may be listening. We all know I'm a big advocate for improving your mental health, but how can you know when to act? PHM, otherwise known as Project Health Monitoring, provides a versatile, safe and secure digital platform that allows students a means to communicate current and emerging issues in real time. The platform provides educators with data to take targeted and timely action so that their students feel known, valued and cared for. PHM takes away the days of second guessing. With children increasingly connected via technology, the PHM approach allows students to initiate a conversation without having to raise their hands. Students need to feel connected and empowered by being directly engaged socially and emotionally. For a free project health check on your school, please click in the link provided in our show notes. This will enhance your students' well-being, performance and their academic outcomes. Now, back to the show. And what happened next, Rach? So we waited a little while to try for another baby. So Gracie was born in 2016 and our miscarriage was 2016 as well. 
we then fell pregnant into the, at the middle of 2017 and we had William in 2018. So again, with him, I went into preterm labor. I was quite sick with him. Like I was nauseous all the time with him. I just felt sick all the time. It was ridiculous. We again had a couple of trips to Newcastle because of preterm labor again with him from 26 weeks. And I was actually with him, I was actually three centimeters dilated from 26 weeks. So my cervix was thinning, which essentially meant that labor was coming and I was dilated. So I was given steroid injections for his lungs to ensure that his lungs were fully developed. And I was allowed then to though come back home to Bendemeer because I was close to 34 weeks and there Tenworth is able to accept babies from 30, like labors from 34 weeks because they've got a special care nursery available and at 34 weeks we did a scan in Tamworth because i again was having like the contractions and that niggling feeling similar to grace the contractions the niggling feeling that feeling that something's wrong nauseous all the time and then i started to actually my waters had started to leak and we didn't i had no idea i just kind of went i feel like i'm peeing myself which sounds really gross i feel, felt like i was peeing myself constantly and I just said to the doctor, I said, I feel really weird. I've had a little bit of spotting. My mucus plug seems to have, some of it seems to have come out, not all of it. And I was just feeling a bit disheveled at this point. I was exhausted. And at 34 weeks, we did a scan, which showed that there was not, like there was very minimal fluid around him. And they did a swab on me again to find out that I had actually got an infection so my risk of infection was incredibly high because of the fact that there was no fluid around him, which then meant that he was then also at risk of an infection as well. So at 34 weeks and five days, I was induced. The induction process in comparison to having Gracie naturally, like I had Grace naturally with, I had an epidural with her, but I had her naturally and then I was induced with William. And I can say that an induction is 10,000 times worse of a labor than having what I had with Gracie. It was awful. So I had William, he was early. So he was born at 34 weeks and five days. They took him away to special care nursery just to do their generic, like we had a bit of a cuddle, which was beautiful. They spent some time with him. And then my placenta took a really long time to come out. So I had the doctor working on me for a while to try and get my placenta to come out, but it wouldn't come out. So I was actually taken for surgery to remove my placenta. I felt fine that afternoon. I kind of wheeled myself in a wheelchair because I was determined to go and have a cuddle with my baby and to try and start that feeding process. Felt fine. Went to special care nursery and had a cuddle. And the next day, the next morning, I did the same thing. So I wheeled myself off. I went and had a cuddle first thing in the morning at about five o'clock. Tried to feed him, tried to express some colostrum, that kind of stuff. And then went back to the room and it was kind of breakfast time. So I was waiting in the room for the breakfast to turn up before I then went back and spent time with him in special care. I'm sitting on the bed and the lady brought in breakfast and, you know, we had a bit of a chat and she said, congratulations on your son and asked what his name was. And we had a, had a really brief conversation and I decided to, you know, how the tables sit across the, across the bed in hospital. I decided that I'd prefer to sit in the window and look out at the view of the Tamworth Hospital car park instead of sitting in bed all the time. So I sat up, I went to sit up, sit in the bed and I stood up and I just, I remember vividly, like, I don't know why, the warmth. I actually felt like I'd wet myself. So I felt the warmth of whatever was going on run down my legs and I just went, oh, that's a bit weird and a bit gross. And I looked down and I could see that it was blood and I'm like, oh, well, that's okay. You know, maybe my pad because... Having a baby, you obviously have that post-birth bleeding. Uh, maybe my pads just moved and I'm just bleeding and that's okay. But I buzzed an, a nurse because I still had a catheter in from when my placenta had to be removed the day before. So I had a catheter in and, and had all the tubes and cords and crap everywhere. So I needed some help essentially to get changed. So I buzzed for her to, to help me out. And she came in and she looked at me and she went, oh, yeah, just a bit of bleeding and and she leant over and she'd hit the wall and I kind of didn't take much note of it. And she was actually pressing the, um, the emergency buzzer for a hemorrhage. So within kind of like it was, it was really snap. It was really quick. 
within a couple of minutes or it might not have even been a couple of minutes to be honest with you like it could have been seconds I don't know there was heaps of gynecologists I think there was three gynecologists and their offsiders and then those people had offsiders too so in the space of about a couple of minutes there was and there could have been 30 or 40 people in the room kind of jammed in working on me and you know I I looked at Dr Appen who was my gynecologist at the time in Tamworth because he helped when my placenta wouldn't come out he was also there then and I just said to him what's happening he he said we don't really know we don't know why it's happening but you're bleeding an awful lot my body then started to go into quite quick shock obviously from the amount of blood loss I still remember the color of like the, they put a really warm blanket over the top of me and then like a plastic blanket as well to try and keep me really warm. And it was maroon. I don't know why, like there's just things, especially in the last week while it's been my son's birthday and then the anniversary, like our five year anniversary since this has happened, lots of things have been popping up for me, which has been both good to reminisce about how far we've come, but also a really hard week as well at the same time. So I was told that there's a chance I might have to have a hysterectomy done. I didn't know really what it was at the time. And I was told to sign, you know, a piece of paper and and let's go and have an operation done to try and see what they can do. You're saying that you needed to make that decision about the hysterectomy, why this is all going on, like why all the doctors and support crew are in the room with you. Yeah. Yeah, correct. So I was told that I might need a hysterectomy because that might be the only way to stop the bleeding. Thankfully, I didn't need a hysterectomy at this time. But yeah, in the process, I was kind of asking them what's going on. And they were asking me who my next of kin was. And, you know, I said, well, my husband, you know, this is his telephone number. So they rang him and he came from Gunnedah across to Tamworth, which is about an hour. I rang my mum and just said, I'm being taken for surgery. And, you know, I looked at the doctor and said, what kind of surgery is it? And he said, life-saving, life-saving surgery is what we're taking you for. It was a lot. It was a lot to have 40 people in that room and not a single person you know. And I still remember Dr. Appen, not only him, but also one doctor in particular, his name was George. And I don't know why I remember him, but he was squeezing fluids into me as fast as, like squeezing the bag to get them into me as fast as humanly possible and holding my hand at the same time. He wore Crocs. I don't know why I remember him, but that's, you know, there's things thinking back now that I just I go oh yeah and you know when it started happening I looked at the clock that was I feel like in every hospital room there's a tv and there's a clock and that's all you stare at all day when you're stuck in hospital is a tv and a clock and you just watch the the second hand tick by but the time in the, at the morning was you know in that in that moment was at 8 10 and I just I don't know why 8 10 in the morning on the 16th of February 2018 was when I had my hemorrhage and I don't know why I remember it so vividly but I do because it's so traumatic yeah, it is, but it builds you to be who you are today. What you go through, you grow through. It made me who I am today. And that's I'm okay with that. I'm at peace with that. And then what happened? They wheeled you into surgery. Yeah, so I had to have some surgery done. Essentially, they put a balloon inside me to see if I would clot properly, which I did eventually. It took a while for me to clot properly. I woke up in recovery and my husband was there. Even the nurses were a bit bamboozled as to why he was in the recovery room because they don't normally actually let family members or partners or spouses or anything into the recovery area. That's a bit unusual. But the doctor had said to him, you know, meet me at the door and I'll I'll let you in. And they did. And he came and sat with me and then I got wheeled around to the high dependency unit and spent a day there and he was getting phone calls from the midwives asking where I was because they were waiting for me to come and feed William and and he just kind of said well she's not going to be there she's in high dependency and she's had a hemorrhage and then the doctor came around and we found out that I'd actually had a two litre postpartum hemorrhage so your whole body after much research actually only holds about seven litres of blood and I'd lost two. So I was pretty unwell for a little bit. (sighs) Yeah. But still determined, you know, I got out of HDU and I was back on the maternity ward. So I had to give myself injections daily. And then even when I came home, I still had to inject myself to ensure that my, my body was still able to, to do the clotting process that we needed it to do, because there was a chance that I could then have another hemorrhage. Once you've had one hemorrhage, it becomes 
more likely that you will have another one. And while that was happening, I was still spotting and I was still having like quite light bleeding. And they said that that's quite normal as well. Obviously post-birth and post-hemorrhage, they said eventually it will stop. However, it didn't. So for 12 months post-birth, I bled. The bleeding was slow while ever I was doing those injections and then those injections ran out and I would see my doctor and I would go and visit him and say, look, I'm still bleeding. I was taking the pill to try and stop that bleeding because, you know, you know, when you take the sugar pill, it brings on your period and then you take the other pill and it, it prevents you from bleeding. So I was taking the pill and just skipping my sugar pills all the time to try and prevent the bleeding, um, but it wasn't working. So that was mentally draining. So I've got two kids now and I'm bleeding all the time. I'd gone through a hemorrhage. I then had to make the really big decision at 26 years old to have a hysterectomy. And I did it, A, because I was really unwell. I felt really unwell in myself as a human being, but I was also mentally struggling with bleeding constantly. And I needed to be a mum. I needed to be a wife. I needed to be a mum. And I needed to be able to care for my children. And I couldn't do that while I was feeling how I was feeling. (sighs) Rach, it's huge. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to unpack and a lot of, really shitty situations talked about it an hour in a podcast makes it seem I probably see it because I've experienced it as just being like oh well that's my experience and that's okay but I suppose that it is a lot and I need to own that it is a lot and that's a valid feeling to feel like it is a lot yeah yeah and that road to the hysterectomy wasn't as simple as you deciding you wanted a hysterectomy like there were some issues there with going from doctor to doctor yeah so I went to my GP I said to him like I'm just bleeding bleeding profusely I went to Tamworth to a gynecologist over there not the same gynecologist who helped me when I had had William I went into a different gynecologist and just kind of said to her I said I've I've been bleeding profusely. I need some help. I'm not quite sure what to do. My GP has recommended you in terms of me having a hysterectomy done to prevent the problem. And she essentially told me that my mental health probably was struggling the most and that I should go on a mental health plan. Now, I knew probably at the time that, yeah, my mental health was awful, like absolutely atrocious. But I also went to her for some help at the time as well. So I then went back to my GP and I said, look, she won't do it. What are my other options? And he said, are you willing to travel? And I said, yeah, I'm willing to travel. And he said, well, he's like one of his really good gynecologist friends operates out of Newcastle. And he said, if you're willing to travel, he said, this is the person I recommend. I'll write you a referral. So I went down to Newcastle and saw Dr. Steve Raymond, who he saw me roughly in about the end of January, I'm going to say. So it was kind of like a five, six week turnaround. So he saw me at the end of January and by March I had had the hysterectomy done. So he did an ultrasound, did an internal examination and said, yeah, your uterus is twice the size it should be. Let's get it out. He said, otherwise you're going to end up really sick. So I had the hysterectomy. And to think you just... It makes me wild sometimes the the throwaway comments that are passed in the medical world around anxiety or mental health or, you know, not validating the person's experience when they sit in front of you and say something is wrong here. You know your body. Like what you have been through, if you're standing there saying something's wrong, people need to listen to that. Yeah, I think I probably learnt, well, like as far as because of all of the things that we'd been through, there was an awful lot of anxiety around what's going on and why is my body behaving in this manner. But also I knew I became so in tune with my body to go, this isn't normal. This isn't okay. I don't know anyone else in my realm of family, friends and connections and acquaintances who have bled profusely for 12 months. I don't know anyone who's been through that. I'm sure that there are people out there who have been through that and my heart goes out to them because it is soul destroying to be dealing with that all the time. Yeah. But yeah, to have another woman as well, I suppose, who is a gynecologist and this is her profession to go, Oh, that's a bit odd. You need to go on a mental health plan. Like it just, I don't feel that she was validating what I was feeling at the time or what I was actually experiencing. And it was just a bandaid cover to 
Like that's not, that wasn't going to help me at the time. That going on a mental health plan wasn't going to stop me from bleeding. Yes. Rach, when you look through everything you have been through, and it has been a lot, what was the hardest part for you? That's a big question. Probably not leaning into the support networks that I had as hard as I should have. So I didn't communicate terribly well with my husband when I was struggling. I didn't say to him, hey, I need help. I didn't communicate with my family that I needed help. I didn't communicate terribly well with my friends that I needed help. I just didn't communicate terribly well when I was struggling. And now in hindsight, I need to put my hand up and say, hey, I need five minutes of your time to just say I'm not coping. Yeah. Did you know at the time that you weren't coping though? It's easy in hindsight to look back and say that as a wise, experienced mother, woman. At the time, do you think you really knew that you were really struggling and you needed their help? No, not at all. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think I can sit here and I can, we can talk about it. And the more that I probably share what we've been through, I just go, oh, it is a pretty big thing. It is a big thing to be dealing with. Mm -hmm. And it is okay to feel not okay in those moments. And no, I don't believe at the time I, I knew that I needed help, but I probably had people around me and my husband in particular being one of them saying, you need to go and get some support and you need to go and get some help. And he was really great in that aspect, but I didn't take it on board as much as I probably should have. Or probably didn't have the capacity to. Yeah. Or probably the willingness to as well. You know, I felt a bit deflated after being told that, you know, to go on a mental health plan. And I just went, well, that's great, but that's not going to solve the issue that I currently have. And I can see where she was coming from because I was absolutely struggling with some PTSD and that kind of stuff. And that's it. That's a very big in hindsight type thing as well. And some pretty severe postnatal depression. Absolutely. But yeah, like I say, it's a big thing to look back in hindsight. Mm. And what's it like coming on now and telling me in a podcast? Because you said it earlier, it's like, it's one thing to tell parts of your story to a close friend over a wine or, you know, to someone that's going through something that has asked you your advice on something. But what's it like sitting here today talking about all of it? It's both terrifying. I'm not going to lie. Like, this is a lot. And obviously, like we said at the start, this is the second time that we've kind of gone through it. But it's relieving as well. I feel that if I can help one person by speaking about our experience, then that's a big win for me. That's a big goal for me is that I can help one person. And, you know, you've got to speak about it. Otherwise, people don't know. They don't know the journey that you've gone through because you don't talk about it. But also, they don't know that it's okay if they're going through it themselves to be feeling how they're feeling. Because it's okay not to be completely okay all the time. Mm. And when you look back, what are some of the things that have helped you along the way? Leaning into my support networks. So absolutely leaning into them. I have got probably a couple of really good girlfriends now that I, you know, on my shitty days, I'll ring them or text them. But my biggest thing is communication. So communicating with my husband that I'm not okay, making sure that I'm trying to slow down. So like we said at the start of the podcast, we've got a potty lamb at the moment, which I never really thought would be a really good thing for your mental health. But it's, you know, it's refreshing going and sitting in the sun and having a cuddle with a, a little baby lamb or something like that. So mm-hmm. it is refreshing. And yeah, just slowing down and appreciating the really little things like the kids' laughter or I now work on the farm. I actually six months ago quit my job where I was inside all the time and I am now working outside all the time. And I found that being in nature is probably one of the best things that I've ever done for myself. Mm. And what's life look like now for you? How many years on are we? So it was our five-year anniversary. Or he turned five this past week. So on the fifth, uh, on the fifteenth of Feb, he turned five, and then on the sixteenth of Feb was our five-year anniversary. So five years on, I mean, I'm feeling absolutely incredible. I feel like I'm right where I need to be. I've got ownership of who I am. I. Yeah, I feel absolutely amazing, to be honest with you. I am glad that I pushed so hard at the time to get answers and to find out what was going on. Mm. And that's really important message for people to hear that are going through it right now and they're in the thick of it. You know, when you're in it, 
sometimes you can't see a way out of it. Uh, Sometimes it's so far down the road that you don't even know how you're going to get there. But to sit here and listen to you and what you've been through and the trauma you've experienced and the challenges that you've faced, to hear you say now that you're in a really good place is provides so much hope and positivity and potential for someone out there that could be going through a really tough time. Absolutely. I think it's really important to push and get the answers that you need to get and also to find the things that allow for you that you know will will boost you. Like, you know, whether that's being out in the sun, whether that's going for a run or whether that's going for a swim in the ocean or if it means you're in the garden or whatever it might be, you need to find that thing after a really traumatic experience that you know boosts you. Mm. Rachel, I'm just sitting here digesting everything that you've just told me and this is the second time as we've mentioned that I've heard it and I still feel really flawed just listening to your story. I think there's so much of your story that was I just had to get through it. It was that fight-flight response that you mentioned. It's that we're on survival here and we can't afford to drop. We can't afford to let go. We can't afford not to take that next step and to keep going and keep trudging. And, you know, I just want to acknowledge for you that space and those few years that you went through and how challenging and difficult they were and how strong you are for going through them. And now to be able to sit here and tell your story for others to grow from that space or to feel more connected and less alone. I just, you are really, really a strong woman. And I can only imagine the type of mum that you are and the type of wife that you are and how lucky those kids are to have you here. And thank God you are here. Thank God we got you through that hemorrhage because it could have looked very different and this conversation may not have happened. So I just want to do a massive shout out and cuddle through the screen because you really are amazing. Thank you, Alds, for having me. It's been, yeah, an absolute pleasure. And I mean, it's been hard, but like I said, if I can help one person who might be going through something similar, feel free to reach out, but also, yeah, you're not alone in this space. And I love to finish every episode with asking who or what in your world truly makes you barely laugh. My husband and my kids, 100%. So they are absolutely incredible and there's nothing quite like watching them hang out together and, and laugh together. You know, they are my main supporters. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thanks, Alz. It's hard to imagine what those few years would have been like for Rachel and her husband. It's an example of how incredible the human body and mind is to think that Rachel can bounce back from such horrific experiences to a place where she is healthy and happy. I think it's important for all of us to know this. We all go through adversity at different times in our lives and sometimes it can feel like it's never going to end. If you are feeling like that right now, I want you to know that we are beside you and you will get through this tough time. You may not know how or when, but time will pass and so will the adversity. As Rachel said, lean on your support systems that you currently already have in your world and reach out for professional help if you think that might be right for you. I hope everyone has a fabulous week and I will see you all next Monday. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.